0: Psalm 34, as we saw in our last study, is a song of thanksgiving for undeserved deliverance. We noted last time that the superscription tells us that this psalm was written by David as he was feigning insanity to escape from Abimelech, the king of Gath, as recorded in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. And we noted that David played the part of a maniac, But, he doesn't take credit for his deliverance. Instead, he attributes his deliverance to the Lord. And in doing so, he penned this psalm, he affirmed God's goodness, and he called upon the people of God to praise God for deliverance. And it's very interesting that as one man is drawn to worship, he desires to worship with others. In verses 1 through 5, I'll recap. This was David's praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were never ashamed. David began here with a call to worship. And what was the object of his worship? But none other than the Lord. And he wanted to bless the Lord. He wanted to praise the Lord. And he did it verbally with his mouth. He boasted of the Lord. And then when others hear it, they too join in the worship together. And we saw and we noted the responsibility that we as believers have to worship God, not just independently, but interdependently worship is not simply a spectator event worship is not an individual event worship is a corporate event in which we all engage together and then verses six through seven this poor man cried and the lord heard him saved him out of all his troubles the angel of the lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them now we see david's protection in verse six and seven Notice again in verse 6, the poor man, that's David here, he cried, and what? The Lord heard him. God answers David's cry of distress with action. And that's how God always works. When his people cry out, God always responds with action. We know that uh, the angel of the Lord there was a pre-incarnate uh, uh, theophany of Christ, Prior to his becoming uh, in, or taking on human flesh, and we made some uh, connections there. We noted who it is that is delivered. It's those who fear the Lord, those who have a right reverence for God. Now, verses eight to ten, we saw David's promise. So we again we have David's praise in verse one to five, David's protection in verse six to seven, and god's promise here in verses 8 to 10 taste and see that the lord is good how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him O fear the lord you his saints for to those who fear him there is no want the young lions do lack and suffer hunger but they who seek the lord shall not be in want of any good thing And we noted here that uh, uh, David is, when he says, taste and see, he's, he's basically commanding us to test the Lord. Test to see what he's all about. And you know what we find? God is good. He delivers us, he gifts us, he's good to us, and we are blessed. But we noted that this blessing comes from surrender and reverence to the living God. We want to pick up now with verses 11 to 16 and see David's perseverance. Again, he's writing this psalm, Psalm 34, as a song of thanksgiving for deliverance, uh, for God delivering him from the king of Gath, who was going to murder David. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now it's David's intention in this psalm not just to worship the Lord, Not just to witness his goodness, but to teach us to fear God. We're to worship the Lord, we're to witness the Lord's goodness, but we're also to fear him. And he adopts the style of instruction that was used by the court scribes of the ancient Near East. Notice he calls upon his children, his students, to gather and listen come you children listen to me okay i'm the teacher and you're the my pupils i want you to gather together around me as your teacher and listen this this court style uh approach that he's using was very common uh or made very common by solomon you know solomon often would call upon the people to gather come children gather together and i will instruct you in the ways of the lord uh, we, we see the same, a similar style here. Perhaps da- Solomon may have even learned it from David. So what we have here is wisdom teaching. And you know, when we think about the Psalms, we often don't think of them as wisdom literature. We think of the Psalms as a song book. Uh, but you know, it's more than just a song book. It's a theology book. You know, there's a lot of rich theology about who God is and what he does. Uh, but it's also a book of instruction, a book of wisdom. You know, we think of Proverbs as the book of wisdom, but the Psalms has just as much wisdom as Proverbs does. And so David drops some wisdom uh, upon those who have gathered around and, and are joining in worship with him notice he says come you children he's he's in the place of the father instructing his children or the teacher instructing his pupil in what the proper way of life now the summons to be his children is not mocking them he's not belittling them oh you're just a bunch of children you're acting like children no what he's the reason why he refers to them as children is because he wants them to accept his authority as their teacher he wants them to submit to him because he's the one instructing them. And he wants them to be open and ready to learn. You know, when we come to sit under the preaching and teaching of the word of God, you know, the one teaching or preaching is in the father position or in the position of authority of of handling the word of God and when we come and sit under that one who's teaching or instructing us we have to come with a childlike attitude in other words we have to come with an attitude that I'm going to accept the teaching of the scripture I'm going to submit to the teaching of scripture I'm coming with a readiness and an openness to learn And so ask yourself, when you come and sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, is that your attitude? Do you come with an openness and a readiness to learn, or do you come already with your mind made up? There's nothing new, I can learn, I know it all. I'm not going to hear what they have to say. You know, or even when you hear something you've never heard, well, I I just can't be, because I've never heard that before. Well, again, do you know every piece of information? No, nobody does. So there's always something for all of us to learn. But we really need to give consideration to our attitude as we sit under the ministry of the Word of God. After the invitation to instruction, David projects a call for the person who's ready to receive it. Okay, those of you that are ready to receive it, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Here's a little motivation, okay? David puts a little motivation. Don't you want to live long? Don't you want to have a good life? Now, again, if I said to each of you, do you want to live a long time? Do you want to have a good life? You know, the vast majority would say, oh, absolutely. Certainly we do. Well, David says, here's the answer to living a long and good life. And the instruction proper begins with verse 13. The person who fears the Lord first controls his tongue. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and a righteous man hates lying. Again, what does he tell us here? Not only to control the tongue, but that you know he, he uh, says, uh, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You know, a righteous man hates lying. Remember, God is a God of truth. We are to walk in the truth. Satan is the father of all lies. And so if, if deceit is coming out of our mouth, we're not speaking on God's behalf, we're speaking on Satan's. We're acting as children of Satan, not children of God. Even as we've seen in our study of James, particularly in chapter 3, there's a responsibility for believers to control their tongue. In fact, a failure to control one's tongue is perhaps indicative of having a faith that is worthless or not genuine. And isn't it interesting that long before James picks this issue... David is instructing us on this very same issue. Those who fear the Lord must control their tongues, control their mouths, control their words that come out of them. We need to speak truth. But I've got to tell you something. Truth's hard to speak if you don't know the truth. The only way we're going to know the truth is to study the word of truth. And when we study the word of truth, we will hate the lies of the devil. He goes on to say, first, that to fear the Lord, we've got to control our tongues. Now, he says, the second aspect of fearing the Lord is that we avoid the presence of sin in our lives. We avoid the presence of sin in our lives. Again, if we're going to fear the Lord, then we've got to separate ourselves from whatever would affect our fellowship with him. 1 John is very clear. Chapter 1 tells us that if we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. And the only thing we can do at that point is confess and forsake that sin so that the Father can cleanse us and so that our fellowship can be restored. Paul told the Ephesians we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Let me ask you, are you exposing the works of darkness or are you enjoying the works of darkness? Believer, we must expose them and not enjoy them. You know, I hear so often that Christianity is just too negative. You want me to live this moral life and you know all you wanted me to do is follow a list of don'ts. Let me tell you that's not you know yeah, there are some don'ts, but you know what? there's also some positives. We have one here. Do good. The negative was leave the evil behind. But the positive, you've got to leave the evil, you've got to do the negative so you can enjoy the positive. And the positive is do good. And good is defined in Scripture by what? The law of God. It is moral living. It's not knowing the law, it's not contemplating the law, it's doing the law. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, as we see, saw in James chapter 2. Uh, you, know, we're, you know, you say you have faith, but you don't have works. I'll show you my faith by my good works. And that phrase, good works there, kalos or ergon, or ergas, is what? It's beneficial or beautiful, uh, precious deeds of obedience to God's law. That's what Paul told the Ephesians. You've been saved to produce, not by works, but to produce good works, to produce obedience to God's law. And again, here's, here's David giving us that same information thousands of years before James and Paul wrote it. You know, we live in an amoral age. We, we have gone beyond immorality. We're now at amorality. We're, we're living in a where there's where people don't want any kind of morality. They want anarchy. And now more than ever, we need the Word of God to instruct us, to teach us, to mold our minds, to shape our thinking, to sharpen our conscience. There's too much double talk out there. There's too much double-mindedness, and that's why there's so much instability. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know, think about it this way. The world talks about adultery and fornication as sexual freedom. No, call it what it is. It's adultery. No, it's sexual freedom. No, it's adultery. It's fornication. Oh, we're pro-choice. We aborted the child. Well, they wouldn't even call it a child. We aborted the fetus. I realize fetus is a medically correct term. But they want to use the word aborted. Terminated. No. You murdered the unborn. And by the way, people are no longer selfish. Now we have self-affirming or self-realizing. You know, uh, you need to come to this uh, study and learn how to to speak what you want into existence. You need to be self-realizing. You need to be self-affirming. You know what's at the heart of all that nonsense? Selfishness. God tells us what is evil. He doesn't redefine it. He says selfishness is evil. He doesn't call it self-affirmation or self-realization. He says murder of children is evil. Oh, we call it pro-choice and, and so on and so forth. We call it sexual freedom. God calls it adultery and fornication. And he tells us to him to know what to do good and do it not. That is sin. I don't care what words you put on it. I don't care what label you slap on it. At the end of the day, God says, if it's right or wrong, well, how do I know? Look at his law. That's what the law is there for. To help us to learn what is good. To help us to learn to fear the Lord. To learn the moral will of God. So that we can guard our tongue. So that we can guard our behavior and keep ourselves from evil. So that we may do the good work of God. I'll tell you, my friends, this call to do good is not simply a call to moral living, though it's very much so, but it's a call to kingdom living. Kingdom living. You see, kingdom living theology is a call to do the works of Jesus. It's to manifest His kingdom. It's to restore His order over a fallen, disordered creation as much as we can in obedience to Him. Verse 14 tells us to seek peace and pursue it. What is peace? This is wholeness on a personal, social, political, and spiritual level. We're to look and we're to inquire. We're to pursue the wholeness in every dimension of life. We're to, you know, be at peace with all men as much as is possible. Can you say that's true of you? Are you can it be said of you that you're someone who, who tries to be at peace? Listen, it's not easy, it's hard. Or are you somebody who just loves to keep peace? Things going. To keep stirring the pot, stirring the pot, stirring the pot. We're to seek peace and pursue peace. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called the sons of God. Christ himself is our peace. He's, been, he's given us peace with God. He's put play peace in our heart. And yet, for so for some reason, so many quote-unquote Christians, rather than pursue peace, rather than looking to reconcile or to pursue reconciliation, they're they're happier enjoying their broken life, broken relationship, and living in a broken world. That's not what God called us to do. He's called us to moral living. He's called us to kingdom power. He's called us to biblical justice. He's called us to compassion to or for the poor. And this, those who live this way, as has been demonstrated by James, and now here in Psalm 34, are told that they will receive goodness. They'll receive length of days. Those who live in the fear of the Lord will do these things. They'll control their tongues. Do you control your tongue? You want to know? Hey, listen, do you live in the, in the reverence or the awe or the fear of the Lord? Well, do you control your tongue? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then don't tell people that you live in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so, well, I got control of my tongue. Great. Well, let me ask you this uh, What about evil? Are you pursuing good? And by that, are you putting off evil? If you're not putting off evil, if you're not putting off sin, if you're not pursuing what is good, then I got news for you you're not living in the fear of the Lord. Are you pursuing peace? If you're not pursuing peace, if you're being a strife star, I got news for you. (laughs) Yeah, you're not living in the all or the reverence of God. We're to do good and live, or do evil and die. The choice is ours. What will we do? Verse 17 and 22 The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now he's promised the righteous person the presence of God, back in verse 15 and 16. But now David uh, promises answers to those prayers in verse 17 and 18. We have preservation. Preservation, verses 17 to 22. David's preservation, our preservation. That's why it says the righteous cries out and the Lord hears. He again, repeating that prayer. Just like God's people cried out in Egypt, God heard sent Moses to deliver them. Likewise throughout the gospel, Jesus responded to those who came to him and cried out to him for help. And he helped them. He healed them. He did whatever he could to alleviate their pain and suffering. And he does the same for our prayers. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now God did not promise here a life of easiness, but he does promise us a life of deliverance. Sin infects us. Sin affects us. Sin afflicts us. Our flesh rebels. We must battle it continuously. Satan and the forces of evil harass us and we must withstand them constantly. The world wants to tempt us and we must continually flee those lusts. And death is knocking at our door at all times. But the Lord delivers us from all of them. He delivers us from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, and even from death. You say, how's he do that? First of all, he forgave your sins. Second, he crucified your flesh. And third, he arms us against the devil. Think about that. He forgave your sins. And he crucified your flesh. Your flesh doesn't have to be in control anymore. You don't have to serve your flesh. You have the capacity, you have the power to say no. And to flee. Because he will deliver you from that. He goes so there's three so far forgive sin, crucifies flesh, arms against Satan. He also delivers us from the world. He's delivered us from the world. And he's also promised us resurrection from the dead. So we have promises of victory. But notice we also have the promise of protection. In the present. We're going to have spiritual victory in the future, but we're going to have protection in the present. Now, this is a concrete guarantee of God's care. But don't assume this means that you're never going to fracture a bone in your body, or that you're never going to get sick, or that you're never going to get hurt. Don't take the scripture out of its context. Don't force the scripture to say something. It doesn't. Because what, really is, what we really have here in verse 20, this promise of physical protection, is really prophetic. The hope for the righteous who are delivered and protected is fulfilled in Christ. Because on the cross, not one of his bones were broken. This specific promise here in verse 20 was fulfilled in Jesus in John 19.36. He was afflicted and at the same time protected. That's the work of redemption. And he did it so that we too could be delivered. Verse 21 pronounces the Lord's judgment evil shall slay the wicked. Now, the wicked, basically, here it means they're going to be caught in their own traps. They're going to they're be taken down by their own doing. Because it's God, not evil, that has the last word. Okay? Their own evil. They did it to themselves. God's going to sit back and laugh. But someday these goats are going to go into everlasting punishment. But the Lord redeems the soul of his servant. He's going to cut the evil off. He's going to cut the wicked off. But he's going to deliver the lives of those who have submitted to him. The fulfillment of this promise is found in the very words of christ in john 17 verse 24 father i desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where i am they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world david uses a negative to state the same thing in contrasting terms none of those who trust in him shall be condemned isn't that precious if we're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're not going to be condemned. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's new Guess what? He's not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right here in Psalm 34, we have the gospel. Those who have faith in him will not be condemned. Is your faith in him? Then, child of God, go forth rejoicing knowing there is no more condemnation and deliverance is on its way and let's give thanks for the deliverance that we've been given Father God in heaven we thank and praise you Lord for the great deliverance that is ours in Christ that you have delivered us from sin you have delivered us from our flesh you have delivered us from Satan you've delivered us from the world you're going to deliver us from death Father you're going to resurrect us gloriously into your presence we're going to reign and rule with you forever We're going to enjoy all the majesties of heaven. We have a great inheritance at our disposal. Father, help us not to be short-sighted to forget those benefits. Father, even more, I pray that we might reverence you, that we might live in all of you, that we might have a right fear of you, and in doing so, Father, that we might control our tongues, that we might control our lives, that we would pursue good, seek good, that, Father, we would find ourselves doing those things that are pleasing to you and not to ourselves. Help us, Father, as your Spirit shows us areas in our life where we need help, where we need work. Do the work to make us more like your Son. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name.